Hello, everybody, and welcome to Season 5, Episode 9 of Bad Gays, a podcast about evil and complicated queers in history. My name is Ben Miller. I'm a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Schwules Museum in Berlin. And my name is Hugh Lemmy. I'm a writer and author. This is our first ever two-part episode, and we've been covering uh, since last week the life of Cressida Dick, who was, uh, until quite recently, the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police in London. Uh, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, now is a great time to pause this episode and go back and listen to last week's episode. We will briefly talk about, uh, at the beginning of the show, some of the things that we discussed in last week's episode, but it would be better to start from the beginning. And Hugh told that story so well, um, especially the history of the relationship between uh, the history of queer lives in the United Kingdom um, and the history of policing in the United Kingdom and also the first decades of Dick's life. We also want to remind you that if you like the show and if you like what we do here, you can visit our website at badgazepod.com where you can find information about our forthcoming book, Bad Gays, A Homosexual History, available for pre-order now from Verso Books, uh, as well as a link to our Patreon, uh, information about t-shirts and an archive of all the episodes we've ever done. So please do go check that out if you like the show and what we do. So Hugh, do you want to get us up to speed with where we are from last week? Yeah, yeah. In last week's episode, which was uh, part one of this profile, we discussed the history of women in the Metropolitan Police, uh, the Met's history of vice policing and harassment of LGBTQ people, and the first few decades of Dick's rise through a ranks from this beat cop to completing her MA in criminology at Cambridge, and then her appointment to the head of the diversity directors at the Met. This week, we'll discuss Dick's record as a senior officer and the rest of her career. As with last week, just a content note that today's episode will again discuss police brutality, racism, sexual violence, harassment, uh, extreme misogyny and homophobia. And it will at times, um, where I think it's necessary to give a, a full impression of, of the Met and the culture of the Met, it will do that sometimes in, in quite graphic terms. So if that's not something you'd like to listen to, um, then this won't be the episode for you. So when we left Dick, she was the head of the Met's diversity directorate, dealing with implementing the recommendations of the McPherson report, which determined the Met was, in his words, institutionally racist, something that Dick, of course, agreed with, as we discussed in the last show. She didn't stay in that position very long, however, and there's something of an indication between uh, the difference between the the rhetoric and the reality of the Met, because she then moved into the role as leader of Operation Trident a Met initiative started in 1998 that continues today and targets gun crime within uh, British African Caribbean communities. This is an initiative that um, had a constantly expanding remit, broadening to include all non-fatal firearms offences, and in uh, 2012, even further to cover gang crime too. This included the development of the so-called Gang Matrix, which is a huge secretive database of alleged young gang members. Um, The whole concept of gang policing is a racialized one. Uh, According to an Amnesty International report, while only 27% of those responsible for youth violence are black, 72% of those identified as responsible for, quote, gang-flagged violence are black. This is partly because the matrix is compiled through methods like monitoring social media, through monitoring things like music tastes and friendship groups all racialized forms of policing that have also encouraged the, for example, the the suppression, um, the racist suppression of uh, black British cultures, like uh, grime, grime nights, grime music, for example. Uh, It's seen as a 
as a, a, a so-called flag on um, on violent behaviour. And children as young as 12 are added to this database, and it has very long-term effects. Um, according to Amnesty, young black men with cr- clean criminal records are being flagged as being on this database when applying for work. And it, it comes, you know, 10 years later, they that it pulls up in, when, when they, they have their criminal record checks that they haven't got a criminal record, but but they are in this database. Yeah, this is true, obviously, outside the UK as well. Um, there is, in Berlin, often this uh, sort of hyper-focus on quote-unquote clan criminality, which is kind of the same term as gangs, and it's always this focus is always brought into election campaigns by the center-right party, the CDU. Uh, meanwhile, the number one person on the CDU's federal parliamentary list works for a law firm which personally profited off of a successful case to strip rent control for millions of people living in the city. So who's the actual criminal clan? Yeah. It's always <clears throat> exactly. The, the concept of, of, of a gang is so highly racialized. You know, Being in a, a music video with some friends when you're a black teenager is not a crime. Yet we'll see you targeted by cops as part of that surveillance system. But getting roaring drunk and vandalizing a restaurant, for example, is a crime. Yet two of the last of the last three British prime ministers have been members of the Bullingdon Club, this all-male dining club at Oxford University that's renowned for disorder and vandalism. But then the children of the rich and powerful, like it seems like a facile point to make, but it is important that the behaviours themselves are not the issue. It's the race and class position of the people involved that make them branded as a gang. You know, I think uh, I think that that's also at the core of this conception of this, again, quite racist phrase, black-on-black crime. It's the racist conceptualization of a problem that's dressed up as a concern for the problem um, in order to sort of justify increased policing of black communities and of the the sort of perpetualization of this culture of harassment. Members of Oxford dining clubs smashing up the bar at the pick and whistle or whatever is not conceptualized as white and white crime, um, although it's a very white thing to do. And the whiteness of such people is never included in the idea of why such crime happens. Um, yeah, the most the most serious incident in in her career was um, was just around the corner. It was twenty uh, second of July two thousand and five. Uh, just two weeks earlier, four suicide bombers had launched this massive uh, terrorist attack on London's transport system, with three bombings on the London Underground um, and another on a bus that killed fifty two people and in- injured hundreds more. On the twenty first, uh, so so this is a couple of weeks after. Um, another attempted attack took place, which with initially there were these four suicide bombs that failed to detonate properly in very similar circumstances. And London, uh, which was already on a state of alert, saw this manhunt essentially start for the suspects. Um, Cressida Dick was the gold commander of the day's operation, meaning she was in charge of the strategic command at the highest level. You know, you have strategic command, tactical command, which is silver and uh, operations command, which is bronze. So she was right at the top, sort of overseeing the strategic uh, policing of this entire operation. So inside one of the uh, aborted bombs that had failed to explode the previous day, the police had found a gym membership card with an address on it. Uh, and so by the 22nd, the next day, they were staking out, staking out the uh, block of flats uh, with the name of the, with the address on it. And uh, a man left the flats. So it had been intended originally that as well as a surveillance team doing a stakeout, a firearms team would be there and they'd confront anyone who was seen leaving the flats. However, poor organisation meant that the armed officers in the firearms team weren't aware that they were supposed to be there. They didn't join the stakeout, leaving just the surveillance officers in the role of having to stop somebody. 
if they had to, which is something that they weren't trained in. On top of this, um, quite amazingly, the stakeout team didn't actually even have a decent photograph of the suspect. They had a very poor, grainy photograph, and some of them didn't even have photographs at all. Um, instead, they were tasked with filming the suspect leaving the flats. Uh, crucially, the surveillance officer at the scene missed the opportunity to film the man leaving because he had been taking a piss. As it happened, the man who left the flats wasn't the suspect. He was a 27-year-old Brazilian man named Jean-Charles de Menezes, an electrician who lived in the same flat, block of flats, um, and he'd left his flat um, after having get, getting called on to a job. So he jumped on a bus to go to work, and he was followed by surveillance officers who still hadn't stopped and searched him, and they had an opportunity to, but they didn't. While he was on the bus, the um, police officers then uh, decided that he was the suspect, and this seemed to be confirmed for them when he got off the bus at Brixton Tube Station and then got back on and uh, very quickly, which is something that they regarded as like an attempt to shake off the tail to evade surveillance. But in reality, it was because the tube station had been closed by the police following a security alert. So he got back on the bus to get to the next tube station. So when he finally got off the bus at Stockwell Tube, there was again another chance to stop and search him, which the officers failed to do. By the time he'd entered the tube station, Cressida Dick had issued the order to stop him, quote, at all costs. Now, there was some later confusion about whether at all costs is, in fact, an order to fire or not. But whatever the, the case, firearm officers followed John Charles down onto the platforms. Uh, de Menezes was already on the train when a surveillance officer identified him by, quote, this is his term, his Mongolian eyes. This is, of course, the same police force uh, which Cressida Dick was talking about, how wonderful progress they've made, all this wonderful progress in terms of uh, race and diversity, right? Right. Yeah, um, okay. Yeah. I was just checking in on the mongoloid eyes and the progress uh, of race and diversity and how that fit together. Mongolian eyes, but that's interesting. Okay, yeah. oh, that's a lot better. Good, okay. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's, it's an interesting... Um, Difference because obviously the, the the concept of um of Mongolian as a racial type is goes back is a very is a as a very early Victorian racial yeah, science perspective. It feels like um, a particular version of awful racism, like very a very weirdly outdated version of awful racism. It's like the kind of comment you'd expect to see in a racist police report from nineteen twenty two, uh, yeah. not from, not from more recently. But anyway. Yeah. Um, the, the police officers, the firearms officers later claimed that um, uh, he, he sort of, as he was challenged, he was challenged by them. They shouted armed police and one police officer said that he got, got up and moved towards the officers. Um, at, at the later inter, in, inquest into the killing, the jury determined, determined that there was no warning and that he didn't leave his chair. He was actually pinned down by the officers and they fired 11 times, hitting John Charles seven times in the head and once in the shoulder with hollow point ammunition, killing him instantly. Immediately after the killing, the police began to spin the incident. Um, the post-mortem claimed uh, that he'd jumped the barrier at Stockwell Tube. Um, something that the pathologist was explicitly told by senior police officers while going on a, a walkthrough of the crime scene. Uh, this is untrue, and the police knew it at the time. This was purely to spin the fact that they'd shot him because he was acting suspiciously. In fact, he'd actually stopped to pick up uh, one of the free newspapers outside you know, London's tube stations so he could read it on the journey. 
Um, they released a statement claiming, quote, clothing and his behavior at the station added to their suspicions, um, confirming these word of, ra- word of mouth reports that he'd actually been wearing this very heavy coat in the middle of the summer. Again, a reason for suspicion. This was also untrue. He wasn't wearing a heavy coat. Um, the suspicious behavior included checking his phone, according to them, and texting. Um, he was late for work due to this closed underground network. And then, of course, reboarding the bus after discovering that the station was closed. All this was released into the media. And I remember at the time, um, this sort of trickling of, of well, a, a flood of lies, basically, about his behavior. And then this sort of trickling back of that, of, uh, they sort of rode these things back bit by bit. Um, and the jury at the inquest decided he was not lawfully killed, but no officer was ever punished for his death. Dick was cleared by the jury. Uh, speaking about the, the incident on this, is very, there's a very sort of homey BBC light entertainment radio show called Desert Island Discs, where famous people are asked to choose, you know, music that they'd wish to take with them to a desert island if they're stranded. And on this show, she said, quote, I wish, wish, wish it hadn't happened, of course. But if anything, it has made me a better leader, a better police officer, and it has made me more resilient. So there's what? the upside. There's a silver lining. She's become a better cop as a result of, of this man's murder. You know? What? Yeah. I wonder how well that would work for someone that she arrested in jail. Some poor black kid she arrested in jail who said, well, by doing this crime, not even <laughs> forget murder, by doing this crime, you know, I learned that I shouldn't do it anymore and I've become a better person. That would work really well. <clears throat> yeah, right. This has now become, I didn't know that anybody could do some, say something more mind-blowingly self-centered than when the soprano Elizabeth Schwarzkopf on Desert Island Discs selected eight of her own recordings as what she would bring to a desert island. But this has just blown that well out of the water and obviously involves something far more serious and important, which is some no. fucking extrajudicial state murder. Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah. Yet um, her career sort of continues largely unimpeded. The following year, she was promoted to Deputy Assistant Commissioner, and then in 2009 to Assistant Commissioner, the first woman to hold the role. Yeah, I mean, little things like uh, murdering people usually don't get in the way of advancement through police forces. Uh, yeah, um, failing upwards is really the um, the hallmark of her career, but I think also, we maybe can talk about this later, perhaps the hallmark of um, uh, the way the, Briti- the British class system, I think, works. She she moved up, as I said, and in 2011, she moved into a senior counterterrorism role. And in 2012, she oversaw the policing of the London Olympics. Yeah, any attempt at moving higher in the ranks was stymied. She had uh, developed an increasingly difficult relationship with the commissioner at the time, uh, Bernard Hogan Howe. He removed her from her role in counterterrorism. Uh, as a result, she decided to leave the force applying first for a role as uh, head of the PSNI, the Police Service of Northern Ireland. Again, obviously not an easy job, uh, but she didn't get that job. And so in 2015, she retired from policing to join the Foreign Office. Uh, What did she do at the Foreign Office? Well, the truth is we actually just don't know. Her role was never announced, although it was very high at the Director General level and uh, compensated accordingly. But the, the Foreign Office has refused to say any more about what her job was uh, there. And she, the, the, the Foreign Office has also denied multiple freedom of information requests into her role. Does this imply that there was maybe something a little intelligency about that? Oh, absolutely. I think she was involved in can- some sort of counterintelligence or anti-terrorism, counter- counter-terrorism role, yeah. Well, clearly someone who um, has such brilliant capabilities should be involved <laughs> in the highest level and most sensitive possible work. That could have well been the end of her policing career. 
but then in 2017, the commissioner, Hogan Howe, retired. And uh, Dick was made the commissioner by Amber Rudd, the then Home Secretary, with the input of Sadiq Khan, the Mayor of London. She became the first woman in the role, and shortly after, the first openly gay commissioner. For it was at this juncture that she, um, I guess, came out. Although whether it was actually a secret before, I'm not sure. It's just that, you know, now she's in this high-ranking role, her personal life would obviously be seen as something that, you know, might be in the public interest. So she, as part of this Puff Beast interview for the um, Evening Standard, uh, which is London's major newspaper, she discussed her personal life, uh, including her relationship with Helen. She's just given that name, Helen, um, a fellow police officer who worked uh, in a major police station in South London, as well as the fact that she attends church. Uh, she doesn't own a TV and pointedly that she took a pay cut upon taking a job. And that's as much a political gesture as a humble one because she'd been calling for an increase in police numbers, which she felt was necessary because of cuts due to the uh, government's austerity program, which is obviously a uh, fraught political issue for a sort of law and order party to also be making cuts to the police force. I'm sorry, when you just said that her partner was also a cop, I think that people should know about the face that I made, which was sort of a Greek <laughs> mask, Greek tragedy <laughs> mask mouth and enormous sunken, horrified eyes. Oh, God. Yeah. Gaze that you would least like to have over to a dinner party, two church attending cops. There's a huge number of things that we could talk about in relation to her tenure as commissioner. She started her tenure by implicitly uh, countering her strategy to the, uh, quotes, total policing strategy of her predecessor, Bernard Hogan Howard, pushed this total policing idea, saying that she wanted fewer armed police on the streets or on display, and stressing these so-called Pelian principles of like policing by consent or um, citizens in uniform. But her actions reveal just the sort of logics of control and racialization that sit behind policing. Um, some things to consider, which I'm not going to go deep into, as I mentioned um, at the start of last week's show, that 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 we're primarily going to talk quite a lot about uh, gender and sexuality. Um, but but obviously, race is a uh, a very important thing that we we need to discuss and acknowledge. Um, but I'm not going to go into too much depth, but just to say that. First of all, she became a very strong advocate of the racist uh, stop and search tactics that have been used to harass people of colour and especially young black men in London um, for, 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 for a long time. They, they've been a source of anger for many in the, in the black community uh, and the Asian community well back in, you know, into the 1960s, 1970s, when the, quote, sus law was used by racist cops to um, harass black and Asian people. Um, in... 2018, the Conservative government relaxed rules around reasonable suspicion being needed to undertake body searches. Uh, that led to a 40% rise in, uh, in body searches the following year in London. Inevitably, given police racism, that increase was much higher for young black people. Uh, uh, black people were almost 12 times more likely to be stopped and searched than white people. According to the civil liberty group Liberty, Quote, these statistics reveal that race disproportionately, that race disproportionately in the use of, uh, suspicionless section 60 powers is rising at a staggering rate. Statistics the government held when they decided to relax restrictions on when police can use these powers. End quote. Uh, Dick also approved the use of the euphemistically named tactical contact strategy for dealing with suspects riding scooters. Uh, in short, this allows officers who are chasing 
uh, motorcycle and scooter riders to hit them with their police cars in order to end the chase, obviously sometimes leaving suspects with very serious injuries. Dick was also criticised for the use of COVID regulations to stop and search young black men. In May of 2020 alone, stop and searches of young black men doubled, and over the course of the March to May lockdown, the number of stop and searches of young black men was the equivalent of 30% of the um, population of young black men in London. That's that I mean, some people obviously get stopped more than once, but it means statistically, basically one in three young black men were stopped within that two-month period. And just, I mean, this this point has been made by others more eloquently and has been made about policing in the United States as well, but just imagine, unless they mean many people listening to this may well be people to whom this has happened who have lived this life, who have lived this experience. But if you haven't lived this experience, try to imagine what it would be like to be shaken down by cops once or twice a year, just in the business of going about your day. And also to know that there is some degree of risk, a great degree of risk sometimes, and only quote unquote, a moderate degree of risk at other times, that that interaction could lead to you being brutalized or murdered. Um, and what, what that is, and that is just what it is to live as a black person under this kind of policing. And for some young black men in, in certain areas in London, once or twice a year would be a very infrequently. People you know, discuss being stopped once or twice a day uh, in some, some instances. I was getting the once or twice a year from that you know, 30 oh, yes. month thing. But yeah, of course. And, 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 and then the, the places, these places that are then deemed quote unquote hotspots, um, which are places where um, places that have been created uh, places that are concentrations of highly racialized poverty that have been created by the concentrations of power and wealth in other parts of a city, which are already, even without this sort of repeated brutalizing and shakedowns, difficult places to live, places where there's often kind of other social problems going on that are created by those structures, you then add to that um, as though it were some kind of solution this kind of repeated shakedown and brutalization. And this is what is meant by law and order. This is what is meant by taking things seriously. And frankly, if you want to talk about descriptions of an urban gang, a group of people who go around brutalizing people, shaking them down, you know, all of this stuff, that's the police. That's what the police are. You want to talk about who the gangs are in cities? It's the police. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Met Police are London's biggest gang. Um, I mentioned earlier, in fact, the use of, of racial profiling in the Met's um, gang matrix. Uh, and Dick not only pushed for more of these powers, with, as I mentioned, restrictions being lifted in 2018 by the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, but um, and I'm going to issue a, a euphemism alert here, which we should have on this podcast for lots of reasons. But she, let's say, actively misled Parliament about the Met's attitude to, uh, towards groups who monitor stop and search. In 2019, she told a Home Affairs Select Committee when challenged on a report by Stopwatch, which is a charity founded to monitor stop and search and the over-policing of marginalised communities, that, quote, I'm very pleased to live and work in a city where there are groups who see it as their job to hold the police to account, keep an eye and campaign on certain issues. And that is what Stopwatch does. We meet them really regularly. We know each other very well. Stopwatch's chief executive, Katrina French, later clarified that, quote, we haven't met with Cressida Dick ever, and we haven't met with senior Met officials for at least three years. 
you know when someone from a state-funded security service starts their speech with that whole, I'm so glad to live in a society where blah, 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 we do blah, blah, blah. Like, it sounds like a threat, right? And they know it sounds like a threat. And it is a threat because the threat is, and if you're not nice to us, then we will no longer live in that kind of a society where um, blah, blah, blah. Where oh, it's, 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 it's exactly what I was talking about last week, which is the way the Cressidic operates as a, as a PR operator, which is uh, not immediately defensive. She, she sometimes will partially admit a problem, then she'll spin it to say that it's not as bad as you might think it is, uh, that it's being monitored, et cetera, et cetera, that, you know, that, that it, we're part of a, a quote unquote civil society. And then she will sort of um, go on to just to put all her energy into defending the cops themselves. So that response, you know, that that's essentially a lie. <laughs> you, you might call it a spin or an error, but I'd say it's a, it's a lie it, very much in keeping with the culture of lying to protect the reputation of the police. But it's, it's unusual for Dick to make such uh, an incautious lie, one that she can be held account for, um, held to account for. Because one thing that's very noticeable about Dick is how she, she manages to switch positions according to the responsibility of her role. For example, last week we mentioned how in the wake of the McPherson report, um, in her role as Chief of the Diversity Directorate, uh, Dick commented that, quote, it's very difficult to imagine a situation where we, we will say we are no longer institutionally racist. It's a long way off. It is certainly obtainable to be more sensitive than we are and reduce it further. But a point about racism is it's about the structure and society of society and power differential and how institutions operate, end quote. However, in 2020, during Black Lives Matter protests happening in London, Dick sort of denied that the Met was still institutionally racist. Although, again, she used quite weaselly words to say it. She said, quote, I think it means all sorts of things to different people. I don't think it's helpful. We have zero tolerance of racist behaviour within the Met. Just last week, somebody was sacked for racist conduct, and everybody knows that that is the case, end quote. Of course, while institutional racism might mean different things to different people, the whole point of the McPherson report is it gave both a very specific definition to the term and it applied it to the Met. And of course, the whole point is that not everybody thinks it's the case that the police, <laughs> that the police are not racist. You know, what, what, the way you're saying that everybody knows that it's the case that the police have zero tolerance on racist behavior in the middle of the Black Lives Matter protests. Yeah, you always know in one of these situations when one of these people starts waxing off philosophical about the nature of knowledge and truth, you know, that Donald Rumsfeld quote, for example, about the known knowns and the unknown knowns and the known unknowns. It means they're bullshitting you, and it means that their bullshit is wearing thin, uh, and so they have to kind of come up with something to get them through to the end of the sentence. You always, I always think in these in these sentences of a small airplane flying through a storm, running out of fuel, trying to find a place to land before it crashes. I'm going to do something I never thought I'd ever do, which is defend Donald Rumsfeld here. But I'd say I think there's a lot there's a, there's there's a lot more sense in the known knowns and unknown knowns quote uh, that does. Yeah, there's a lot more sense to that than than Cressida Dick's uh, response, which is basically, "Well, what is truth? You know, what do you mean by racism?" You heard it here first, folks. Quote: <laughs> I'm "Going to defend Donald Rumsfeld." Unquote. Hugh Lemmy. Comparatively speaking, but these these are just some of the criticisms of Dick's tenure as commissioner that deal uh, with a very very important day to day policing uh, of of London. But there are also a number of specific cases for which she drew criticism and which, again, are illustrative of wider problems with both Dick and with the Met more widely. So um, the first of these is her involvement in the aftermath of the Daniel Morgan murder. 
Um, I'll cover this very briefly. It's a very complicated case. And if you'd like to know more about the Daniel Morgan murder, there is an entire podcast on the subject, Untold, which we'll link to in the show notes. But briefly, Daniel Morgan was a private investigator working in South London in the 1980s. Uh, he'd founded an investigations company, uh, an agency called Southern Investigations, with his work partner, um, Jonathan Reese. In 1987, after um, having been drinking with his associate, Reese in a pub in South, South London, he was found dead in the car park, having been murdered with an axe to the head. Notes that he'd been making were missing from his body. They'd been taken out of his pocket, which had been cut open. Uh, but his wallet, with a considerable amount of cash in it, remained. The of- officer who was charged with investigating the case, Sid Fillery, had in fact also been moonlighting as a private detective with Southern Investigations. And this was just the start of the saga. At the inquest into his death, it was alleged that the murder was a collusion between Reese and officers at the local police station who would have carried out the murder. There was a culture of organised corruption in the Met in South London, something made clear by subsequent investigations into the Stephen Lawrence murder that happened six years later. Uh, There's been five inquests into the murder, but all the trials have collapsed due to procedural inconsistencies with the police and prosecution. The family have never seen justice, but in 2021, an independent inquiry released its findings into the handling of the case over the decades. Uh, That report branded the Met, quote, institutionally corrupt, an echo of the McPherson report that declared it institutionally racist. Um, According to the report's findings, quote, the Metropolitan Police's culture of obfuscation and a lack of candour is unhealthy in any public service. Concealing or denying failings for the sake of the organisation's public image is dishonesty on the part of the organisation for reputational benefit. In the panel's view, this constitutes a form of institutional corruption. End quote. You'll see here another echo to Dick's response to her role in diversity di- director at charge with implementing the um, changes recommended in the McPherson report, as we discussed. Um, but this report specifically criticised Dick directly for obfuscating access by the inquiry to important files known as the Holmes accounts, saying, quote, The panel has never received any reasonable explanation for the refusal over seven years by the then Assistant Commissioner Dick and her successors to provide access to the Holmes account to the Daniel Morgan Independent Panel, end quote. There's a further point that the panel flagged up, which, of course, which is the um, the relationship between the Met Police, uh, police corruption, and the media, uh, especially the tabloid media owned by the media tycoon Rupert Murdoch. Um, understanding the power that Murdoch holds and his newspaper's very complex relationships with British institutions is integral to understanding virtually everything about Britain. It's far too complex to cover here. But um, Jonathan Rees, Daniel Morgan's former associate and a key suspect in the murder, was also a key player in the 2011 phone hacking scandal, which is, again, another, a whole other issue of police corruption. This is on top of a lot of very credible allegations, not just of conflicts of interest between uh, Murdoch's papers and members of the force, uh, of serving Met officers receiving brown paper envelopes stuffed with thousands of pounds of cash, or collusion to cover up and suppress investigation into that bribery. Um, and of course, of the Met dragging their feet on investigations into the, the widespread media practice of phone hacking, that um, phone hacking, which was often of victims of, of, of brutal crimes. The chair of the panel in the Morgan case said, quote, We believe the Metropolitan Police's first objective was to protect itself. In doing so, it compounded the suffering and trauma of the family. Yet, uh, Cressida Dick's chief aide responded, quote, 
I don't think the commissioner has any need to consider her position. The Home Secretary, Priti Patel, and the Mayor of London, Steve Khan, uh, both backed uh, Cressida Dick in her position, although they did call for the report's findings to be addressed by the police. This is the moment when I'm going to check in and say that it makes complete sense to me that someone like Cressida Dick would be advanced uh, under the kind of, uh, you know, uh, supposedly softer and more modern conservatism of, say, a David Cameron, right, with the sort of the, the Toryism of, you know, making the party logo a little green tree while simultaneously brutally cutting social services, the conservatism of passing same-sex marriage while simultaneously destroying funding for all kinds of different vital social programs people rely on. Like, this makes total sense to me. Um, Sadiq Khan, mayor of London, um, was, I think, in the labor selection for that, theoretically, the more left-wing candidate. Um, is this just a case of um, anyone who is the mayor of London, just because of the structural reality of that role as the kind of guardian of real estate, um, is just sort of forced into supporting um, whatever policing is occurring, no matter what they may say or campaign on? Yeah, I think it, I think it's worth seeing them within their structural framework, but also seeing Sadiq Khan as being um, not not particularly on the left of the Labour Party, um, <clears throat> not necessarily a, a, on, on a, the Blairite right, but but yeah, um, and also him having to walk a, a thin line in terms of his relationship with the Home Secretary. It's a it's a funny position, the Mayor of London. It's quite a quite a new one, um, still sort of being yeah sought out. And, and policing is actually one of the few things that, that they have, he has quite a, a say on. Cressida Dick's conduct was also called into question regarding the Stephen Port murders, uh, a terrible incident that, that recalled the police response to those murders of gay men who were targeted by serial killers in the 70s, 80s and 90s, who we discussed last week. Stephen Port was a serial murderer and rapist who lived in a small flat in Barking, East London. Over the course of more than a year, from 2014 to 2015, he raped and mur- murdered four young men who he had met on hookup apps, uh, leading him to be named by the press the Grinder Killer. His his MO was the same with, with each killing. He'd um, invite these men, all in their early 20s, to his house, where he'd surreptitiously ply them with drugs, including meth and crystal meth, and then give them a drink laced with GHB um, and rape them and all four died of a GHB overdose. The first victim was 23-year-old Anthony Walgate. <clears throat> Your, this, th- this story, uh, I followed the story a little bit when it came out, but didn't really look at too much into the details and of the role of the police, and y- your, your jaw will hit the floor when you, when you hear about this police investigation. So, so this first victim was, was uh, Anthony Walgate, 23 years old. Um, Port literally dragged him onto the pavement in front of his flat and then called the cops on his own phone early in the, mo- in the morning to report having found him when he's quote-unquote drove past. Uh, when the police got there, Walgate's underwear was on back to front. His phone was missing and his arms showed bruising that was consistent with having been dragged. When the police found out that Port had hired Walgate uh, as an escort from um uh, escort website, something which they only discovered later when Anthony's friends showed 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 the police a photo that, that Anthony had sent them of the clients, just in case. Tragically, you know, because because this sort of thing is a, is a, a risk for sex workers. Um, they they seized Port's laptop 
and he was then prosecuted for perverting the course of justice and he was sentenced to eight months and he was released on, ta- on tag. But the police took him at his words when he said that Anthony had accidentally overdosed in his flat and he, he just panicked, despite the fact that he had previously already been convicted of drugging and raping a man. Um, had police bothered to do a forensics check on his laptop, they would have found that he'd spent hours on gay porn sites watching date, date rape videos. And they would also have found his conversations with his victim on the escort site. Um, and when a, one of Wargate's friends later told the detective that she should investigate Port's involvement, he said, quote, you need to let it go. You're not going to find out. So in between Wargate's death and um, then Port being prosecuted for perverting the course of justice for um, not re- for, for lying about uh, how he'd found a body, supposedly found a body, uh, he killed two more young men. Uh, in August, he murdered 22-year-old Gabriel Cavari. Um, and he left his body slumped upright against the wall in a graveyard 500 metres from his house. A month later, just a month later, he killed 21-year-old Daniel Whitworth, and he left him sat in the same position in exactly the same place. Yet this time, he left with him a handwritten suicide note, quote-unquote, which included the line, By the way, please do not blame the guy I was with last night. Police did not find this suspicious. He was actually tragically found by the very same dog walker who'd found Gabriel's body a month earlier. Uh, Whitworth's family were shown the note, and they said that there was nothing in it that, that identified it as having been written by him. Um, and the police refused to show the note to his boyfriend, with whom he lived, and shared a bank account because he wasn't, quote, next of kin. Um, despite this, the police declared that the family had confirmed it as authentic, the suicide note's authentic. The bed sheets that he was found wrapped in wasn't even tested for DNA, despite the fact that it was later found, obviously, to be covered in Port's DNA. And the so-called investigation, it's not really an investigation, was closed. Um, officers ignored concerns raised by all three of the victims' uh, fa- fa- friends and family, who would themselves piece together the obvious connections by Googling the, 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 the circumstances and being found in the same place. And they were concerned that there was a serial killer on a loose. And it was another year during which Port was prosecuted for perverting the course of justice before he would strike again. Exactly the same MO. He left the victim in the same position, uh, leaning against the same graveyard wall. And yet still the police didn't investigate. The victim, Jack Taylor, was not a habitual drug user, uh, and the detectives at the scene had been the same detectives who'd attended the prior crime scene, yet they still didn't see the link. And I've his, been trying to shut up while you tell the story, but what the fuck? Just, 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 uh, just appalling. And his death wasn't ruled as suspicious. And the person who was put in charge of the investigation into the last murder was just a regular PC whose normal beat was just patrolling the park. And he was only put in charge because he'd been the one who was first alerted to the body by by whoever found it. Um, and in fact, nobody at the police station even directly informed him that he was in charge of the investigation. And when he asked for help from the local CID, they denied helping any help. And it was only the tenacity of the victim's families that led to the, the CCTV of the, the local train station being reviewed. Uh, Port was identified. And even then, he was only identified because one of the detectives um, on the first investigation happened to walk past the desk of a colleague on which his photo was printed out and recognised him. To me, the, to me, this is clearly homophobia. The refusal to see these people, uh, these young men, uh, as potentially being the victims of a serial killer was because they were gay and because the police saw young gay men 
as being involved in, I guess, a chemsex culture, and this is just part of the culture of, you know, I, I can't see any other way of interpreting it other than it being motivated by homophobia. An independent inquiry into the case by the um, IOPC uh, identified that there were, quote, systemic failings, but recommended that none of the 17 officers who were investigated should face any disciplinary action. And seven of those officers have since been promoted. Uh, a later inquest jury wasn't actually permitted to assess whether homophobia played a part in, in those failings, but it would rule that these failings probably led uh, to the death, the final th- deaths of the final three of Port's victims. And MPs wrote to Cressida Dick demanding an inquiry into, the, into whether the Met is, quote, institutionally homophobic, uh, something that the victims' families rightly think is the case. Uh, that inquiry has never happened. The Assistant Commissioner, Helen Ball, replied, quote, We don't see institutional homophobia. We don't see homophobia on the part of the officers. So that's all right then. Jesus fucking Christ. I mean, I don't think there's much I can add other than Jesus fucking Christ. Um, although I do want to say, I think in addition to the kind of homophobia, obvious homophobia of the police response, I think another thing that that kind of police response points to, and this is maybe a more controversial point, uh, and maybe slightly off topic, but I still think it's important to talk about, um, is the way in which a certain way of talking about the phenomenon of chemsex and drug use, a certain kind of sensationalized way of approaching that um, think of that infamous chemsex documentary, um, ends up actually making it easier for police to get away with shit like this because when these people die, there's this broad cultural assumption that, oh, these gay men are getting up to this and they sort of all do this to each other. And it's all, it's all in this category of scandalous drug use as opposed to, in this case, serial murder. And I think it's important to think about the way that some of these narratives and some of these ways that we ourselves sometimes talk about these problems actually perpetuate the stigma and the stereotyping that lead to this kind of police response. Absolutely. I think think it's also very um, useful to look back at what we were talking about last week in terms of um, the the link between um, vice policing and the media and media moral panics and um, and scares and how the Labouchere amendment um, directly emerged out of these sort of vicarious uh, prurient uh, sexual panics that that were happening in the, the Victorian press. And just to make it clear, you know, oftentimes when these sort of sensationalizing articles about chemsex practices come out. Um, oftentimes when they are released, what they're describing is a serious problem, you know, and, and, and to, to make this kind of media discourse analysis level intervention in that conversation is not to say that those things aren't describing something that might be something that people need to think about, but it's to say that there's a way of talking about that in which the drugs and the culture are given so much agency that actually in a weird way, it ends up it ends up laying the groundwork for this kind of, I think, very phobic response and ends up basically inviting people to, um, as you said, live out this kind of vicarious uh, medium moral panic. Yeah. So this this absolutely uh, willful denial of this culture of racism, misogyny and homophobia within the Met, um, a denial that's practiced by the Met as an institution, um, and the denial is also practiced, of course, by Dick herself, would lead to a series of further scandals. Um, in March 
2021, a young marketing executive named Sarah Everard was stopped by the Met Police, uh, Met Police Constable Wayne Cousins as she was walking home through Clapham. It was about 9.30 in the evening and Cousins had arrested her under the pretense of having her having broken COVID guidelines. He identified himself with his warrant card, handcuffed her and put him in the back of her car. He then drove her to Kent, which is a county bordering London, where he raped and murdered her before attempting to dispose of uh, her body over the following days. After Cousins was arrested, more details were revealed about his time in the police. He had been repeatedly accused of indecent exposure, uh, incidents that were never properly investigated. Once he was called back from his beat to the police station by his colleagues after a sex worker had turned up at the police station, alleging that she hadn't been paid by him. His nickname on the force, and I I wish I was making this up, but it's true, was The Rapist. Even after all this, several police officers uh, testified as to his good character after his arrest. Perhaps more tellingly is Dick's statement after Cousins was convicted of his crimes, saying, quote, They are dreadful, and everyone in policing feels betrayed. Again, 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 the number one priority for Dick is the reputation of the police, as though no, the betra- they didn't feel betrayed. They didn't fucking feel betrayed. They went and testified to his good fucking character after he got arrested yeah. for raping this yeah. woman. And it was yeah. very obvious that he had done it too, if I recall. It's not like yeah. it's not like they found this guy and there was this long investigation and maybe he did it, maybe he didn't, whatever. No, it was very, very fast. They, they found video of him doing it, basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Almost immediately. Uh, yeah, I mean, for, for Dick, um, the betrayal of fellow police officers seems to be some some sort of important moral issue here. Like... Um, I think I think that says something about her the way she conceives as a police and her, her role is is again defending the honor of the police. Didn't she also suggest, or someone suggested? I remember that um, as a solution to this problem, they were going to uh, force uh, men to show their warrant card before they uh, stopped women on the street, and this was going to stop this problem. But he was a real police officer. He had his warrant card. That wasn't the issue. Like it would have, like that would have done nothing to stop this. Like it's so. And they they, they also they also advise that if you were stopped by an under, a single undercover police officer in the street, you should flag down a passing bus or a, or a passing motorist to ask for help. As like the, like that's that's this that's criminal. You know, to, it's resisting arrest. You'll get you'll get beaten that's badly. How you get shot. That's how you get yeah. shot. I mean, it's ridiculous. Jesus Christ. Um. Following the arrest of Cousins, uh, vigils were called to remember Sarah Everard across the country. Uh, in London, at Clapham Col- Common, uh, which was very near where Cousins had kidnapped Everard, a vigil was called, and um, Kate Middleton, actually, the wife of uh, Prince William, actually attended the vigil laying flowers, which is important, as we'll discuss later, maybe, um, because later that night, the numbers swelled at the, at the site of the vigil. Claiming that the vigil was unlawful due to a breach of coronavirus regulations, um, something that had actually been threatening all week, leading to the initial organisers um, tr- attempting to call off the official vigil, the MEP then decided to use force to break up the vigil, which had been attended by hundreds of women. Uh, uniformed officers, mostly male, began pushing through the crowd to the bandstands that was the focus of the vigil, and then again what are euphemistically called clashes, um, they're not clashes because if you know that the police brutality, but these clashes occurred as um, police arrested attendees and dragged other ones from the area, and 
many in the press um, regarded it as um, essentially a phenomenally stupid response from a PR perspective. But I also think you can see it as something much deeper and more telling about the nature of the Met. They simply couldn't see themselves as anything but these both these heroes and these victims, this, again, this, this same ideology of this thin blue line between order and chaos, they're martyrs, you know, and uh, they respond to the public, to all the public, um, but especially to marginalized communities as potentially part of the rabble that they are defending the law abiding from. So even to attend a vigil in mourning for a dead woman killed by a police officer is that those people are still seen as part of that class on whom violence can and should be used if it's determined to be illegal. Yeah, I think you summed up their attitude there well. And I also think, and I mean, this is an, an, another potentially controversial point that's slightly to the side of what we're talking about, but I think it's important as we, in a lot of contemporary, um, very current political conversations, this is why a lot of people um, have been saying this for the last two, almost three years, that it's actually a really bad idea to have police be responsible for enforcing public health regulations. And it's a really bad idea to design public health regulations in such a way that they involve restrictions on public behavior, which are then enforced by this kind of police force. Because when that happens, you end up with the coronavirus regulations being enforced when it comes to this kind of a vigil or being enforced when it comes to somebody, you know, somebody who like, well, you know, young, black, young, black, young black guys on the street. Yeah, somebody who worked all day and, you know, a black guy who worked all day and is on his way home and sits on a park bench for 10 minutes and gets a big fine. And of course, never once did the police break into Downing Street and, you know, break up one of the apparently weekly fucking bacchanalias that were going on in the basement. I also think it's wrong to see this as a poor PR decision. I think it's actually just one part of this culture of violence and misogyny that sees those on, quote unquote, the wrong side of this thin blue line. Um, as as open season, um, you know the 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 PR the, the 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 action at the vigil was written off by many in the liberal media as a poor PR decision. Um, it, leaving aside the fact it was still defended as appropriate policing by Dick, uh, but how do you explain the fact that the woman whose whose arrest at the protest was was very prominent? She was on the, a lot of the cover the the, the the newspaper covers the next day. Um, over the ensuing months, she was repeatedly harassed by up to fifty cops including them contacting her repeatedly on her Tinder profile. Um, how do you explain that months after Cousin's arrest, fellow officers who were part of a WhatsApp group with him um, had repeat, were repeatedly sharing racist and sexist material, they were still on duty? Or that the two police officers who shared, uh, shared photos of two young women who had been stabbed to death in a park, again with a WhatsApp group with other officers, uh, referring to them as, quote, dead birds, uh, and they superimpose themselves on, uh, the, as like taking a selfie with these dead bodies. Like the phrase "bad apples" is often used in relation to cops, and that intends to mean you know the whole force can't be held responsible for the actions of one or two quote bad apples. <clears throat> but of course, the full phrase is "one bad apple spoils the whole barrel." I.e., this is a culture of misogyny, uh, racism, and homophobia, and of complicity and complacency, which allows one to feel entirely comfortable. For example, sharing casually sharing photos of a murder victim, thinking that they're going to get away with it. And in this case, it's not even one bad apple spoiling the barrel because you've got fucking dozens and hundreds and thousands of bad apples. It's a barrel full of rotten fucking apples with maybe one apple that gets thrown in there every once in a while that isn't rotten. And within seconds, 
The non-rotten apple will be rotten and brown and oozing and infested with ants. Yeah, a good example of how this culture is is absolutely integrated into the forces policy um, is the spy cops scandal, uh, an ongoing scandal that's currently the subject of the undercover policing inquiry. The case revolves around a four-decade campaign of police surveillance of political and activist groups across the UK, where the police sent officers deep undercover for many years in order to infiltrate, surveil, and subvert political campaigns. Over the course of many operations, and starting as early as 1968, the police sent over 130 undercover officers that we know of onto assignments that lasted for years, uh, aimed at over 1,000 political groups, uh, justice campaigns, and so on. The inquiry has granted wide anonymity to the cops involved, so only a couple of dozen have yet been identified. And the same has happened with groups spied, uh, that were spied on, although it's known that the vast, vast, vast majority were, of course, on the left of the political spectrum, uh, with only the neo-Nazi terror group, Combat 18, the neo-fascist political party, the BNP, and one other far-right organi- uh, organisation targeted from the right. However, on the, on the other side, they spied on everyone, from the anti-apartheid movement, to the women's movement, to anti-war groups, and even on the family of Stephen Lawrence, the, the teenager who was killed, and who's, who's the, the trial of which, uh, the, the, the investigation of which into his murder was, um, was the subject of this massive police corruption. They were, they were spying on people, investigating their own corruption as, as an official operation. And these com- shocked. I'm making my shocked face. Yeah, the 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 cops um, actually used faked identity documents using identities that they'd stolen from dead children, which is a dark, a dark illustration of what the cops, I guess, are like in this culture. Is the ritual that actually, upon being given their new identities, many of these cops would then visit the, the graves of the children whose identities they had stolen. It's thought that well over 50 people were wrongfully convicted on the evidence of spy cops. Perhaps most egregious of all, though, is the deception of women involved in these movements by the spy cops themselves. Many of the spy cops began intimate, long-term romantic and sexual relationships with women while undercover. Some even fathered children with women without ever telling them that their identities were fake, that they were, that they were cops. Uh, one woman told how one of these undercover cops um, had attended her father's funeral with her and held her through the night as she cried. Like, I can't even begin to imagine the catastrophic uh, emotional and psychic damage that must be suffered by so many of these women who are still fighting, not just for justice, but even just to know the basic facts about their abuse and abusers, which is still being covered up. Some further statistics on this, this general culture within the Met um, <clears throat> and within the police in general in the UK. Uh, one woman a week re- reports being subject to sexual or domestic violence uh, or abuse by a police officer. Between 2015 and 2018, 700 incidents of domestic abuse are reported. In the six years from 2012 to 2018, there were 1,500 reports of sexual misconduct against police, but only 197 cops were ever fired. Uh, criticism of Dick has been intense for the, uh, the past year following so-called Partygate, these parties that you're describing in 10, 10 Downing Street. Um, the, the, they've discovered that the rest of the UK was subject to these strict lockdown restrictions enforced by the police, uh, such as the Sarah Everard Vigil. Meanwhile, Downing Street had hosted a number of these parties. Uh, and, and after that, the Met announced that, it, that the police, quote, don't investigate re- retrospective breaches of the COVID-19 regulations. Like a strange, a strange suggestion that crimes that happened in the past 
i.e. crimes, are somehow not subject to the law. I keep thinking that we've reached the maximum levels of my possible cynicism as we record this episode, and I keep surprising myself in that I am continually able to be shocked again by this. Ultimately, it would be this. These these were all things that have occurred in um, Cressida Dick's time as as the commissioner, and which their storms, which she has somehow weathered, I guess, um, with the support of both Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, and Sadiq Khan, London's mayor. Um, but ultimately, it would be this wider culture of misogyny that finally pushed uh, London's mayor, um, Sadiq Khan, to, to force Cressida Dick from the position by uh, declaring that the, the capital's crisis of trust in the Met had become, become untenable. Earlier this month, uh, which we're recording in February 2022, the IOPC released a report about the culture of the police force at Charing Cross Police Station. This includes things like officers having sex with drunk women who they'd placed under arrest, uh, sexual harassment of the most obscene kind, uh, extreme racist abuse, 1970s-style racist abuse, um, Islamophobia, jokes about everything from paedophilia to Auschwitz, abuse of disabled people, and so on. Um, you can find the report online, and um, I could, but I won't quote too extensively from it because it's fucking horrific. But I did just want to quote one uh, very, very upsetting text message from one of his WhatsApp chats because I think it really encapsulates the culture that I'm referring to here, a sort of macho, masculinist, ableist, uh, heterosexual culture of degradation and violence um, that that's disguised, I guess, as humour. And it circulates very much in order to reinforce the group dynamics that that make this a culture rather than just quote unquote bad apples. Uh, this this cop texted text another one in a WhatsApp group. You ever slapped your missus? It makes them love you more. Seriously, since I did that, she won't leave me alone. Now I know why these daft cunts are getting murdered by their spastic boyfriends. Knock a bird about and she'll love you. Human nature. They are biologically programmed to like that shit. Charming. <sighs> I mean, it, it encapsulates fucking everything. Like, uh, um, yeah, just a scum. I would Press- ask if anyone has tried turning England off and then turning it back on again, but maybe just turning England off and leaving it that way would be a good idea. Uh, yeah, I think it's winding down. Cressida Dick responded to the report saying, quote, there is no place in the Met for the appalling behavior displayed by officers at Charing Cross Police Station. Their conduct, conduct does not represent our values, and I'm deeply sorry to anyone who, everyone they have failed. Um, your interpretation of this statement may differ from mine, but I'm sure Bennett won't. But I'm struck there by the implicit denialism taking place because it's clear that there absolutely is a place for this sort of behavior in the Met. From all the incidents we discussed in the episode, I feel like that text message is a very good and clear representation of the values of the Met. The, the Met attracts those people who want to behave like that. It encourages a culture where they can behave like that, and it protects those who do behave like that. Again, Dick's response seems to be protecting the name and reputation of the force rather than ever even attempting to genuinely address the nature of the Met. So just uh, over a week before uh, recording this episode, Cressida Dick released a statement saying that after discussing her position with the mayor, Sadiq Khan, the Met quote, the mayor no longer has sufficient confidence in her, her leadership for her to continue, and so she resigned. Writing in The Observer at the weekend, Khan said, quote, I'm deeply concerned by how public trust and confidence in London's police service has been shattered so badly, end quote, citing many of the things that we've talked about on this podcast. But for Dick, her career in the force is over. 
uh, as a postscript, which I think explains the continuation of this culture, how deep, deeply set it is. Just before we recorded the first part of this show on uh, last Monday, on, on the 14th of February, the Police Federation, which is the official police association, declared in retaliation that they have no confidence in Khan. <clears throat> Quote, the atmosphere amongst metropolitan police officers is horrendous. It's rock bottom, they said. Quote, officers in London feel saddened and angry that the commissioner, Cressida Dick, has been pushed out in the way she has. She was reforming. She was changing. The culture is changing. I think that sort of response is very telling. They are both extremely sensitive to any sort of criticism or pushback against their self-conception as being these heroes who stand between law and disorder. And also they see the public as a constant potential threat. It's a a perspective that is both deeply juvenile and extremely authoritarian. Uh, In the words of um, Alex Vitale, author of The End of Policing, quote, Since coercion and violence are the tools upon which policing rests, a culture of authoritarian male-oriented power will always emerge amongst officers whose mission encourages them to see the world in simplistic black and white terms of good guys and bad guys, regardless of the gender of their officers or their leaders. Authoritarianism is, at heart, rooted in the worldview that problems of social order must be addressed through oppressive means, which is a fundamental method of policing. But also important is to look at um, how Dick has been represented. At the start of her tenure as commissioner, she was seen as being both a steady hand and a liberal reforming voice, and that as a gay woman, she would implicitly bring a new approach to policing the metropolis. Yet it really shows the limit of thinking about identity in this way. Institutions like the police are by nature primarily committed to self-preservation, including the preservation of their cultures. Dick performed a role, and that role was always defensive. Of course, it's positive in the abstract when people who were excluded from areas of civic life win access to those areas, but it's meaningless without a critical perspective on the nature of those institutions. Removing any analysis of the nature of institutions to look instead for firsts won't ever lead to an understanding of why, for example, the police are headed by a woman, but retain a culture of sexual violence, or why black police officers serve high office in extremely racist police forces. Forming, uh, former Deputy Assistant Commissioner Brian Paddock, uh, at one point the police's, the Met Police's highest-ranking gay officer, once said, quote, It was interesting. When I was in the police, I was told it was okay to be a woman, or to be gay, or to be black, uh, provided you behave like a straight white man. I think that's significant on a deeper level, even than just personal behavior. The police were founded to serve a function in society, one derived from colonialism, one in which white supremacy is based, baked into the idea, uh, one that functions to preserve uh, a social moral order. It's surely ter- telling that the very introduction of women into the police force was motivated as much by a desire by a small group of middle-class fascists to discipline the sexual morality of working-class women as it was to give women more rights. We have to understand that politics is about structures, not gestures. And Dick's career is evidence of that. Well, thank you, Hugh, for that. Um, So what's going to be next for Cressida Dick? Where do we think she's going to fail up to next? Is she the next, I don't know, leader of the Labour Party or... (laughs) There is a tradition within the UK. I mean, really, for listeners outside of the UK perhaps don't quite understand the nature of this sort of British institutions, but you you can reach a point in a British class system where it is almost impossible to fail and almost impossible to be held accountable for your actions. Um, we'll, we'll undoubtedly see um, 
more of Prince Andrew in the coming coming years as an evidence of that. And I think we're going to see the same thing here. I think you can't look at Krasnodik's career uh, as commissioner as in any way a success. Like she's she's been forced out through a lack of confidence of the um, of the mayor of the, of the city that she's policing. Yeah, I I would put money on her being ennobled into the House of Lords within the coming years. It's it's almost a tradition for police officers now. I think only one in the last six or seven has not become a lord. So I think within so there'll be a brief period of um, of discretion, and then I think you'll see um, baronetic. And you know, it's interesting to speculate what party it's going to be. I bet it will be Labour, but the funniest possible outcome would be Lib Dem. No, I think um, should be a crossbench, which is like a. Britain's uh, again for for listeners who don't know Britain's uh, the UK's second chamber is uh, an unelected second chamber with a small number of hereditary peers who who get it by dint of their parents and are voted in by other hereditary peers and then the rest are political appointees um, supposedly uh, appointed by a panel but but there's there's a lot of evidence that there's also a lot of corruption and grift and if you're a donor to one of the major political parties you get chosen to be a lord or a baroness based on those parties. Um, but also, um, yeah, crossbench MPs who, who aren't for any political party. And I, uh, and also, um, bishops, certain number of bishops, spiritual lords, because, um, Britain has an established church. Have there been any announcements about the search for the new head of the Met? I mean, are they, do we think it's going to follow the same kind of pattern as it did with Dick, where someone's going to be brought in um, with the sort of promises of change and reform, and then, as we I think we both expect, nothing much will happen? Or, or what, what seems to be the mood in terms, of, in terms of that search and those conversations? Yeah, I think they can't bring in an old guard figure, as they would have done in the past, so these, these sort of figures like Bernard Hogan Howe, um, because because of the natures of the scandals that brought down Dick, so I think they're going to have to probably um, look for someone uh, who who fits a similar mould to Dick. Uh, but I really think, to a certain extent, it's it's irrelevant because as we've been discussing, this is this is an issue um, of both the culture that exists within the police, um, which can't really be changed by one person. Um, and secondly, of the na- like the nature of policing in general, as as that that final quote by Alex Vitali says, you know that like this is why there are arguments around abolishing the police. Um, that this this is the issue of the nature of what the organisation is for, how it operates, um, and that the by its nature it can't be reformed. So you, we spoke. You spoke a lot about the kind of um, horrible misogyny. Um, that was revealed in the um, that was revealed in the these like WhatsApp chats and these different kind of uh, chats and stuff from from the police. Um, and I'm wondering if there was any of that ever directed from within the police towards Cressida Dick, or whether we didn't see that as much. And they, I mean, I'm, I'm just not sure. Like, did, did Dick face did Dick face any of that from kind of within, or did the kind of general code of code of silence or, or code of, of cops protecting cops um, keep that under check when it, when it was, when it came to her. You know, what? I don't know for sure. I think <clears throat> I'm sure, I'm sure on a low level that there are always jokes within these organizations. If you, 
given the nature of it and what we've discussed, I'm sure there are plenty of sexist and homophobic jokes about her. But um, from what I've read, she has quite wide support within the police service. That she was quite popular. Uh, she's known as Cress within the um, you know within the police service. They call her Cress, and th- there was quite a lot of support for her. Um, and the attack on her was obviously, as I've discussed, for the the police federation um, response seemed to be an attack on police in general and police police officers in general. Um, not an attack on her, to be fair. The the holding her to account of her for her job was seen to be an attack on police officers. Um, but I do think what's what's interesting to look at is some of the responses within the liberal media who continue to adopt this sort of thing that we're talking about, like a politics of gesture, not structure, as it were. Who, who see the significance in her being a um, being a, a, a gay woman in that role? That there were some still some defences after she'd gone, saying she's be, she's a woman who's been forced out by uh, by um, by by men. You know that she's the victim of this misogyny. That I don't see any evidence that she's she's the victim of that victim of that sort of structural misogyny within the, the police force. She wasn't forced out by the police. The police didn't want her to leave. She's being supported in her resignation. I think she's probably well regarded by the police themselves um this this take really makes no sense to me uh and so i I don't put much i don't put much credence in those sort of readings and um there was a there was a terrible new yorker piece that actually uh echoed this and said that she had behaved i think they said with like grace and dignity in her dealing with the john charles de menezes case and i think there's like there's there is a tendency within the liberal media to um really encourage seeing things in these terms of these sort of gestural first base politics when if you look at the evidence if you look at her legacy if you look quite specifically at how the police dealt with the jean charles de Menezes case with her involved there is no dignity and grace in it the suffering that was caused to that 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 man's family the 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 way that it was it was spun the the, the racism that emerged from it the the entire way it was dealing with there is there is no dignity there how the fuck do you respond? What, how do you fuck do you characterize a response to that as dignified? Jesus Christ! None of these people should be able to sleep at night. None of the people who do this, and none of their enablers. Yeah, uh, because you want to, I guess, because you want to believe that there is such a thing as a dignified police force, and that once a few bad apples are rooted out, everything will be okay, and we can deal with this in in that way. By, but but you know, like her career is evidence of the fact that. Um, that this is a structural problem that emerges from the nature of policing per se, you know, um, you can have a hundred, uh, hundred more lesbian commissioners and I won't tackle that fact. Well, I think that's a good place to end this conversation, Hugh. Um, we said last week that we would talk a bit about, um, some of the sources that you had used to research the whole episode um, there'll be links to all of this in the show notes. The other thing that we're going to do is, um, we got a lot of great suggestions from people on Twitter about, uh, cop watch organizations near them, um, and movements organizing around police violence and brutality. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to put some of that information in the show notes for, I would say that six or seven countries or areas where we have the biggest listenership, uh, to make sure that people near them can figure out how to get involved or get connected to, um, things near them if they want to do that. And we definitely encourage people to do that. Um, so that will be specific to your city and all in the show notes and, of course, on our website. Uh, but what are some of the sources that you used to, to, to write the show? Well, actually, um, there's, a, again, like a huge list of 
uh, of sources I used, a lot of which were reporting on the spot, reporting at the time. So it's actually, there's a, I think maybe I'll just point people towards the show notes and they can find all the specific sources. Uh, I would point out, um, I would point out a number of, uh, a few sites that I, I got a lot from that did some very good reporting about it. One of which is opendemocracy.net, which is a very, very good resource for, um, for this sort of analysis in the UK. Um, the Guardian has quite a lot of good, uh, good reporting as well. Um, and, and then the Untold, the Daniel Mo- Morgan murder, which is the podcast relating to Daniel Morgan, which also relates to Stephen Lawrence is in there. Um, uh, Police Spies Out of Lives, which is a campaigning group against um, the, the cop spies, spy cops. I'll put a link to them as well. Um, Sisters Uncut I used for some of the reporting and uh, London campaign against police and state violence. But there's a whole bunch there. And we'll, we'll put, as you said, we'll put these all in. And also um, a number of a new sort of different cop watches that are springing up across the UK, which can help with um, with activism and stuff. Great. Uh, Well, thank you so much for that, Hugh. Um, Again, you can visit our website at badgazepod.com for more information about the show and uh, episode archive and a link to our Patreon and all kinds of other good stuff. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at BenWritesThings. You can find me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy or my newsletter, hugh.substack.com. Thanks so much. And until next week, bye-bye. Bye. Bad. 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 Bad.